Well, good morning, LifePoint, and happy Mother's Day to all of your moms from all of us here at LifePoint. We, uh, our prayer is that, uh, as Proverbs 31 says, your children will rise up and call you blessed, and as Governor Inslee says, only within a distance of six feet. <laughs> Let's pray together as we enter in this morning. Father, thank you so much for the privilege of um, meeting in this way, even during these strange times when we cannot gather as a church. And uh, Lord, I pray that uh, in each of the places where this message is being heard, that you would unite our hearts together, that, uh, Lord, you would uh, pervade those places with your presence. And Father, that uh, as we look into your word now, that uh, you would open the eyes of our hearts, that we would see and hear and understand the things that you want to show us today. And then, Lord, that you would give us hearts to obey. We acknowledge today that uh, all of our salvation is from you. And... uh, we are completely dependent upon your spirit uh, to reveal the truths of your word to us, to illuminate the pages of scripture. And so we ask that you would do that this morning. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're currently in a series that we've titled Simple Virtues for Complex Times, which is rooted in two verses in the Apostle Paul's New Testament letter to the churches in the Roman province of Galatia. And those two verses describe what Paul called the fruit of the Spirit when he wrote, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control against such things There is no law. And we've been careful in these messages to point out that Paul presents the fruit of the Spirit as singular, not plural. It's one fruit with multiple aspects or multiple facets, if you will. I tried to think of a fruit that that kind of fits that description. The only thing I could could think of was an orange, uh, which has about ten Segments, one fruit, ten segments. And, and not to belabor the point, but what Paul seems to be saying to us is that when you believe in Jesus, when you transfer your trust uh, to him, and, and the Spirit of God takes up residence in your life, each and every one of these characteristics in a fully orbed Way These virtues will begin to emerge in your life through your character with increasing visibility, with increasing depth and authenticity. They do not merit or earn God's acceptance of you. Uh, His acceptance comes only by his grace alone through your personal faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. Instead, the fruit of the Spirit is, is, is really among the evidences of your acceptance by God. 
as the Spirit of God morphs your, your weak, sinful nature into the character of Christ from the inside out. It's essential that, that we understand that these virtues are not manufactured by us, but rather that they are produced in us so that they can be expressed through us so that in turn Christ can be seen with increasing clarity in us. And this morning we've come to the fourth virtue, the fourth facet, if you will, of the fruit of the Spirit, which is patience. Patience. We've also been noting along the way in this series that none of these virtues is entirely exclusive to Christians. And as we examine the virtue of patience in particular, we might come to the realization that a great deal of ink has been spilled over the centuries by Christians and non-Christians alike on its value and its importance. For example, uh, St. Augustine, the 4th century theologian, wrote that patience is the companion of wisdom. In the 18th or the 19th century, rather, French author Alexandre Dumas, who's famous for novels like The Three Musketeers and The Count of Monte Cristo and The Man in the Iron Mask, added this note on the exercise of patience that all human wisdom, all human wisdom, is summed up in two words, wait and hope. The 18th century English politician Sir George Seville clearly viewed patience not only as a virtue, but but more as a personal discipline. And, and he observed that a man who's a master of patience is a master of everything else. When we come to the New Testament, we, we encounter specific commands to us as followers of Jesus regarding the practice of patience. For example, Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Paul also urged the church in Colossae, put on, then, as God's chosen ones, Holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And to the church in Thessalonica, he gave this command, be patient with everyone. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. Well, we've all been learning a bit of patience lately, haven't we? We've, we've been learning patience from lines that wrap clear around the building at Costco and Home Depot and Walmart. We're learning patience while waiting for the governor to reopen our state. We're learning patience waiting for the barbershops and salons to reopen so so that we can get a haircut or a hair color, whichever your particular urgent need may be. 
my hair has decided to head back toward the 1970s. I only wish that the rest of my body would follow. You may be learning patience because you're you're forced to wait for the haircut to grow back out that was given you by your mom or dad or sister or wife during quarantine. They say that the real difference between a good haircut and a bad haircut is usually about two weeks. Some of us are patiently or impatiently, in fact, waiting for our favorite restaurants or coffee shops to open. One young mother recently tweeted, went to this restaurant called The Kitchen. You have to gather all the ingredients and make your own meal. I have no idea how this place stays in business. You might be learning patience as you wait to go back to the office or especially as you wait for the moment that your spouse finally goes back to the office. As one husband tweeted, it's, it's been almost a week that my wife and I have been working from home due to the coronavirus situation. I think we will kill each other before the virus does. Some of you parents were learning patience while waiting for your kids to go back to school only to receive the news that they're not going back, but will take their classes at home, online, and do their homework under your supervision so that your personal curriculum for learning patience got expanded and extended indefinitely. I had to laugh at a picture a young woman in our church posted on Facebook this week of an SUV, the window of an SUV, on which a parent had written, You lied. My children are not a joy to have in class. So now maybe you're experiencing an entirely new impatience for the opportunity to tell your kids' teachers how truly wonderful they are and how much you now respect and appreciate them for all that they do for to instruct your children and to help you maintain your sanity. You may have found that you're waiting with a heightened sense of impatience for your kids to simply grow up, or grow out of it, whatever it happens to be. I I remember saying to my children in those moments of impatience, will you please stop acting your age? Some of you may be waiting for your spouse to grow up, and, and... And they are in turn waiting with increasing impatience for you to do the same. A wife tweeted, Quarantine day 21. Fiercely fought with the husband over the day of the week. We were both wrong. The reality is that times like these, times we're in right now, can test our patience, reveal our impatience, and really bring out the worst in us. This past week, a, a friend posted on social media that he and his son and son and son-in-law were standing on his driveway having a conversation when a couple who were out for a walk passed by. Now, this couple were walking quite close together, not wearing any masks at all. But they nevertheless angrily took him and the two younger men to task for not standing far enough apart on his driveway. And needless to say, the three of them were startled and not just a little upset by the attack and its obvious irony. If we don't see it in our own homes, 
then we only need watch the news and see the protests and other forms of civil disobedience happening here in our state and across the nation to realize that the patience of the American people is wearing thin. Not surprisingly, there's been a predictable and verifiable surge in cases of domestic violence during this lockdown period. A psychologist named Mel Schwartz wrote the following in the April 10th issue of a national magazine. Even in the best of times, dealing with relationship conflict and frustrating communications can feel overwhelming. And we are certainly not in the best of times. With most couples and families now confined under the same roof, discord and tensions can surface far more easily. Opportunities to take breaks from one another have evaporated. Yes, we can retreat to separate laptops, phones, or televisions, but the lack of social diversity may create greater tension for many people. This may feel like being in a pressure cooker with the heat always on. If a crisis creates opportunity, then perhaps this is the time to learn some critically needed communication skills. With nowhere to retreat or hide, the opportunity for relationship growth may now be an urgent necessity. Another counselor, Beth Castle, blogged these observations this week. Whatever your situation, if you're struggling to work from home with your partner or even your roommate during coronavirus, you're not alone. COVID-19 has brought a new and exhausting challenge into our lives, navigating a personal relationship while also juggling work, our mental health, caring for kids and loved ones, and the fear of the unknown in a living space that seems to get smaller every single day. This is the garbage compactor scene in Star Wars, if ever there was one. So we're all a little bit like the guy who prayed, Lord, give me patience and give it to me now. In the Greek language, in which most of the New Testament was written, there are two primary words that are translated into the English word patience. Uh, they are makrothumia and hupomone. You don't need to remember the Greek, but those two words are are listed as synonyms, and yet they in fact convey two quite different dynamics with regard to patience. Stay with me here because I want you to grasp the distinction between the two. Let's begin with the second word, hupomone. Its literal meaning is to remain under, to remain under. And we today sometimes use the expression, under the circumstances. This word for patience conveys something quite similar. It, it, it speaks to endurance and steadfastness, to hanging in there under the obligations, the challenges, the trials that God allows us to experience in our lives. So we might think of hupomone as circumstantial patience. Circumstantial patience. Someone expressed this idea of circumstantial patience well when they wrote that patience is waiting, not passively waiting. That's laziness. 
But to keep going when the going is hard and slow, that is patience. Now let's examine the other word, macrothumia. Its literal meaning is long passion, long passion. So in older translations of the Bible, the word is most often translated long-suffering. And this is the word that appears in Paul's list of the characteristics of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, to 23. The difference of meaning between these two words is best seen in their opposites. If, if hupomene is the patience that doesn't give up under pressure, then macrothumia is self-restraint that chooses not to quickly retaliate when one has been offended or otherwise wronged. Macrothumia encompasses the staying power of hupomone, but it's exercised in relationships. If we describe hupomone as circumstantial patience, then we might describe macrothumia as relational patience. F.F. Bruce, in his commentary on Galatians, adds this insight. If, if in English we had an adjective long-tempered as a counterpart to short-tempered, then macrothumia could be called the quality of being long-tempered, which is a quality of God. That long-tempered quality of God is expressed in the Old Testament with the phrase, slow to anger. We find it first in Exodus 34 as, as Moses stood alone on, on uh, Mount Sinai before the Lord a second time to receive the Ten Commandments. Beginning in verse 5 of Exodus 34, we read that the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children, to the third and fourth generation. Reading the Old Testament, God was particularly long-suffering and slow to anger with Israel, which was an expression of his covenant faithfulness to them. And yet the Israelites repeatedly rebelled against him. They whined about their food and their living conditions as Moses led them out of Egypt. They rejected Moses' leadership and, and expressed the desire to go back to Egypt. They set up idols for worship and intermarried with people from the pagan nations around them. In fact, even the pagan nations must have begun to look a little better to God than his own chosen people, Israel. In fact, so great was Israel's unfaithfulness and idolatry and rebellion that it's recorded in November, uh, November, November, Numbers 14 that God did finally lose patience with Israel during the period of the exodus from Egypt and, and determined to strike them with pestilence 
to disinherit them and, and start over with a new people that would come from Moses himself. Moses stood in for the people. He interceded for them before the Lord. And the Lord relented. In the course of that conversation, here's what Moses prayed. And now please, let the power of the Lord be great, as you have promised, saying the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation. Please pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now. Moses, interceding for the people, reminded God of his very own words and of his very own character. God's patience wasn't limited to his dealings with Israel. The Apostle Peter wrote that God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. In other words, the worldwide flood of Genesis was delayed as long as it was in order to provide opportunity for salvation to those who were ultimately drowned and destroyed by it. If you'll examine Genesis chapter 7, you'll realize that the door of the ark was left open for a week after it was completed until God himself finally closed it. Reading on, the apostle speaks of the future day of judgment and destruction and says in 2 Peter chapter 3 verse 9 that that day is delayed because the Lord is not slow The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so he adds in verse 15, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation. Even now, God is waiting patiently for more of us to repent of our sin and put our faith in his son, Jesus Christ, before he returns. There there still remains a window of opportunity for sinners like us, like me and like you, to receive Jesus, to run to him, to find forgiveness of our sin and to find reconciliation with God. But that window of opportunity will not remain open forever. There is coming a day when, when God will close it. And that's why Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2, Indeed, the right time is now. Today is the day of salvation. And we observed three weeks ago that God is love. One of the best known and loved chapters in the New Testament is 1 Corinthians 13, where where the Apostle Paul describes the nature of love itself. And as he begins that amazing and beautiful description in 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 verse 4 of 1 Corinthians 13, his very first words are, love is patient. And yet we struggle, don't we, to be both loving and patient. 
We can take instruction from Proverbs 16.32 that tells us, Whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. Or Proverbs 19.11, Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. Or Proverbs 20, verse 22, Do not say, I will repay evil. Wait for the Lord, and he will deliver you. Jesus taught his disciples a parable that illustrates and really elevates the essential nature of patience in our relationships. It began with an intriguing conversation between Peter and Jesus. Matthew 18.21, Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Peter thought he was being generous, I think, by by allowing seven offenses, and it's likely that he was hoping Jesus would be impressed as well by, by the greatness of his generosity and magnanimity. But notice Jesus' response, not seven times, but 77 times, Peter. I would love to have been there to see Peter's face at that moment. Some translations have it 70 times 7. And what we need to understand is that Jesus didn't actually mean 77 times or 490 times so that at either offense, number 79 or 491, we can take our revenge and just let somebody have it. Just count off the offenses. When you arrive at the appropriate number, retaliate. That's not at all what Jesus is saying. The implication of 77 times or 70 times 7 is a limitless number. The number 7 is the number of completion and perfection. When Jesus wanted Peter, what Jesus wanted Peter to know and, and wants us to grasp in our relationships is that the extent of the kind of forgiveness God desires for us to confer on others is, is not a matter of mathematical calculation, but rather it's a matter of the heart. And so Jesus taught them this parable. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. I want to pause right here before going on and help us understand what's taking place. This this servant owed his master 10,000 talents, Jesus says. And it's an extremely exaggerated number for the purpose of effect. One talent in those days represented the wages of 
20 years of labor. 20 years. Translated into today's currency, a single talent would be worth upwards of $600,000. 10,000 talents would be in the vicinity of $6 billion. Jesus was engaging in a bit of intentional hyperbole. The servant pleads with his master, have patience with me. Macrothumia, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. Now, of course, the the master would know that the debt was insurmountable, that it, it would not and could not ever be repaid, no matter how long he might have waited. The servant owed an insurmountable debt, and the master simply forgave that debt, just wrote it off. Jesus continued, but when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. Again, let's put it in context. Just moments before, the first servant was forgiven six billion dollars in debt. More than he could have paid in several lifetimes. And was spared a lifetime of slavery and imprisonment for himself, his wife, and his children. And now he finds a fellow servant who owed him what would have amounted to about 20 weeks of flipping burgers at McDonald's, or about $12,000 in today's currency. Notice that the second servant spoke the very same words the first servant had spoken to his master. Be patient with me, and I will pay you. But neither patience nor forgiveness in this case would be forthcoming. Instead, he threw the servant into debtor's prison. And so Jesus continued, When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me, and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you. And in his anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. In other words, life imprisonment. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. See, when you and I uh, reflect on the insurmountable weight of the debt that we owed, the debt of our sin, and recognize that God in in his infinite patience, in his long-suffering mercy and grace has forgiven our sin at infinite personal cost to himself as he sent his only son to the cross, how can we fail to be patient and gracious 
with those who find themselves in our debt. Paul wrote to the Ephesians, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. And to the Colossians, Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. God's desire is that the patience and forgiveness we extend to one another will be a reflection of his patience, his kindness, his tenderheartedness, his forbearance, his mercy and grace toward us in Christ. He expects nothing less. But where do we find the internal resources to produce it? Let me be the first to admit that when I'm offended or wronged, if I look inside myself apart from Christ, I I don't find patience. What do I find? I, I find impatience, anger, vengeance, retribution. So allow me to repeat what I said earlier. This quality... This virtue of patience cannot be manufactured by us, but the Spirit of God produces it in us who belong to Christ so that it can be expressed through us and so that Christ in turn can be seen with increasing clarity in us. As we live our lives in in vital connection with Christ and as he lives his life In us and through us, we are progressively changed. And the fruit that we bear is a a trustworthy measure of our progress toward spiritual maturity. Our sanctification, which is God's work of conforming us to the image of his Son, is his work from first to last. He began it, and he assumes responsibility for its completion. Paul wrote to the Philippians, For I am confident, I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Let me ask you in closing today, uh, who needs your patience this week? Who needs your forgiveness? Who needs to receive from you the the same comprehensive mercy and grace that God has so richly and fully extended to you? I dare not look inside myself for these things, but only to Christ, my Savior, my Redeemer. I need to keep on looking to the cross where final payment in full for all of my sin was offered and where the the debt of my sin was satisfied. I'm reminded of a song that's been a a lifetime favorite of mine. I I think I learned it maybe in middle school. I sing it often in personal worship. It goes like this. Amazing Grace shall always be my song of praise. For it was grace that bought my liberty. 
I do not know just why Christ came to love me so. He looked beyond my fault and saw my need. I shall forever lift my eyes to Calvary to to view the cross where Jesus died for me. How marvelous the grace that caught my falling soul. He looked beyond my fault and saw my need. Let's pray. Father, we're reminded of our great need to become more and more like you. And we thank you that through Christ and by your Spirit, you are at work in our lives to conform us to the image of your Son, Christ. And Lord, let us submit to the process that Christ would be seen in us, that we would be perfected in love, which is patient. And that we would find you present in the midst of our relationships. That we would be representative citizens of your kingdom of patience and mercy and grace. For the sake of Christ, we pray. Amen. Hey, have a great week, LifePoint. Love each other.